Welcome to episode two of season three of Free the Seed, the open source seed initiative podcast that tells the stories of new crop varieties and the plant breeders that develop them. I'm your host, Rachel Holtengren. This podcast is for anyone interested in the plants we eat, farmers, gardeners, and food curious folks who want to dig deeper into where their food comes from. It's about how new crop varieties make it into your seed catalogs and onto your tables. In each episode, we hear the story of a variety that has been pledged as open source from the plant breeder that developed it. My guest today is David Podal of Prairie Road Organic Farm. David is a founding member of the Northern Plains Farm Breeding Club and has worked with his brother and sister-in-law, Dan and Teresa Podal, on Prairie Road Organic Seed Varieties. Prairie Road Organic Seed is located in North Dakota and focuses on breeding and carrying varieties that thrive in the northern plains of the U.S. and under organic conditions. We'll be talking about Dakota Tears, an open-pollinated, yellow-skinned, firm-fleshed storage onion that David has been working on for the past few decades. Hi, David. Welcome to Free the Seed. Good morning, Rachel. So let's get started by having you describe Dakota Tears for us. What makes it a unique onion? Well, unique in the sense that there are a few open-pollinated varieties out there. It's hard to find a good OP variety in a catalog today. Other than that, how it's unique is that it's unique in the same way that every variety is unique. It has the fingerprints of whoever was the breeder and selector of it. And... uh, And just to clarify, an open-pollinated variety is in contrast to a hybrid, which is a uniform variety because all of the individuals are genetically identical, whereas an open-pollinated variety is a variety where it's a population of individuals that are very similar genetically and looking in the field, but are not identical in their genetics. Right. I mean, open-pollinated varieties have a wider genetic base, or they should, and that gives them uh, more ability to adapt. Mm-hmm. Are there aspects of your growing conditions in North Dakota or your management that influence what makes for a good onion on your farm? Well, I don't know if there's anything in particular that makes for a good onion. Uh, When I started out, I was looking for something that would keep real well because we wanted to eat as much as we could from our farm and garden. And so I wanted something that would store a long time through the winter in common storage. And um, how I started was I was thinking, okay, what in the garden can I save seed from and improve it for our climate here in the Northern Plains? Uh, Many varieties up to that point had been bred for other climates. Uh, We tended to be drier and hot summers, and so I wanted stuff that was drought-hardy and And we had short seasons, and so it had to fit in with a season and still produce good quality. In in short, I wanted something that was really tough. I wanted something that would endure. Um, And so I started saving seed on any number of things in the garden, and I was completely ignorant about any requirements for seed saving. And in the case of Dakota Tears, at first... I just tried to save 
downing yellow globe to save seed from it. I wasn't thinking about any particular further breeding project. So I took a dozen bulbs or 20 bulbs and planted them in the garden. I figured, well, that's all I need. They produce a lot of seed. I grew maybe seven, eight, nine hundred bulbs a year, and I could get a lot more seed than that from, you know, 20 seed heads. And not realizing, of course, that with onions, they are obligate outcrossers, meaning that they have to cross-pollinate. They don't do very well uh, selfing, you know, crossing themselves. So on any given seed head, it's important that each floret on the seed head of an onion plant be pollinated from the seed head of another onion. And uh, so you need a lot more onions than just 20. And so there's a mathematical formula, and I can't explain it, but it's been worked out by geneticists that for obligate outcrossers like onions or like corn, you need a very minimum of 100 bulbs in order to maintain genetic diversity over the long haul. So I soon found out, actually, that planting a dozen bulbs wasn't going to do it. I started to see inbreeding almost immediately, within a year or two. Hmm. I want to define inbreeding depression here briefly. Inbreeding depression is when individuals within a population are too related to one another, and it occurs in cross-pollinated or outcrossing species when too few plants are grown in a population every year. So what did it look like for the onions you were growing to be showing signs of inbreeding depression? Well, uh, inbreeding signs in this case were just a lack of vigor and probably poor seed quality and germination. So then I, I uh, oh, I don't know, I guess I got some books and started reading. At that time, of course, there was no such thing as the Internet. And I learned that, yes, I had to have at least 100 bulbs. So then I set about to uh, do a serious project. And so I took, well, what I did first was, I knew that I wanted good genetic material, so I was growing a, a good variety uh, already called Downing Yellow Globe, and I was already growing a hybrid called Copra that uh, was a really good keeper. And then I searched the catalogs, and I trialed some others, and I settled on, I think, about three varieties of uh, good quality onions that I would cross. And so... What was the third variety in addition to Downing Yellow Globe and Copra? Well, um, Downing Yellow Globe, Copra, and Early Yellow Globe were the varieties I ended up uh, crossing. You said that Copra had good storage quality. And what were the traits for each of the other two parents that you were looking to combine in an eventual new variety? Well, of course, storage was, was the thing. Both the early yellow globe and the downing yellow globe were good storing. I wanted vigor and size and earliness and, you know, a certain globe shape that was nice and the color of the skin. Those are the, the main things. Got it. So once you had chosen the varieties, what was the next step? 
I think I had the three varieties. I raised bulbs of the three varieties, and then I took really nice-looking bulbs, the kind that I wanted, you know, nice size and shape and color of skin and and things that kept over the winter in common storage and weren't yet growing by April. That was the number one criteria, criterion. And so I had a block in the garden. And so then I took probably about 40 bulbs from each of these three varieties, mixed them out there in the three-row block. I think I did like one, two, three, one, two, three of the varieties right down the row until I had my block. So each particular plant would have a different variety of onion beside it, both beside itself in the row and across into the next row. And so when bees visited the the flowers, then they would get things mixed up really well. Of course, onions are perennial, or a biennial rather, excuse me. So you store the bulbs over the wintertime, and you make another selection there, and you plant those out, and then they grow the seed heads. And so that was then the genesis of what became Dakota Tears. Right, so onions are the first biennial species that we've focused on for an episode um, in this podcast, and they differ from annual species in that biennials require two seasons of growth before they produce flowers and seeds. So for onions, you plant the seed in the spring, you get a bulb in the fall, and that bulb then has to survive the winter and be planted back out in the spring. It will grow again and then produce flowers and seeds that second year. If you're in conditions where the weather is more mild and plants can survive in the field through the winter, you could leave your onions out in the field and they would start growing in the next year. But in North Dakota, I imagine that's not possible. Right. We have to harvest the bulbs here. Although, just parenthetically, we do have after seed harvest, and we just leave the stalks as they are and the old bulbs in the ground, And some of them will actually survive the winter here with a little bit of snow cover. So they are really, really hardy plants. But normally, um, yes, and I would recommend that most people dig the bulbs and store them so then you can do another selection evaluation. If you just leave your bulbs in the ground, how can you evaluate them properly? And I know it is tempting to do so in different areas of the country where it would be warm enough, like on the West Coast, but actually digging the bulbs, storing them over the winter, evaluate them before you put them in storage and maybe do a selection for the uh, stock seed planting uh, at that time, and then further evaluate and uh, select out of those that you selected in the fall for planting in the spring. You know, seeds need to be planted and grown every year. And this is part of the selection process, too. You need to plant them every year so the, the plant can experience that season and incorporate that experience within its genetic heritage. I think there's an intelligence in plants that we have not yet recognized that exceeds what humans are capable of. But I think that you know we can tune into that if we just 
think about it, touch them, hold them, you know, care for them, nurture them, and they become part of us, literally as we eat them, but also part of our soul as we care for them. And when you pull the bulbs out in the fall before you store them, what are the things that you're looking for when you do that first selection? Well, the first selection, of course, in North Dakota, stuff needs to be early. It needs to fit within the season. And so early dry down, small necks, plants, you know, where the tops tip over early, but also have a large bulb, meaning that, you know, they're not diseased or anything, and that causes them to dry down earlier but making sure that they're fully vigorous and when you pull them out of the ground, you know, they've got good roots on them. And every stage of the process really has an inherent uh, selection to it. So we pull them out of the ground in the fall and we put them on this rack and there they are cured in the warm fall air for several weeks. And then we you know, each individual onion, we pull the tops off and rub the bulbs to make sure that they're sound, pull the dried roots off, and then pack them in storage in, in the basement where the temperature over the winter is, you know, between 40 and 50 degrees. And, and then when you take them out of the basement from that 40 to 50 degrees, what's the last series of selection criteria that you put those onions through before you plant them back out in the spring? Okay, in the spring then, uh, of course, all through the winter, we're watching for quality. If there's any that's spoiled, then they're taken out. And if any start to grow too much, then they're taken out. But in the spring, the first thing we look for is uh, whether they're growing or not. Anything that stays fully dormant for the longest period is what we like to select. And then the second selection process includes, you know, the size and shape of the bulb. We want nice big bulbs. You know, shapes can vary a little bit, and that's how we know we have some genetic diversity. Some are more uh, globe-shaped, some are round, some are a little flatter shape, but as long as they're very sound and very hard, and then we like to look at the color of the skin. We like a nice, you know, rich brownish-orange color on the skin for a yellow onion such as this. So, There are, as you said, multiple stages where you're doing the selection over the course of those two years before you get seeds again from those onions. So biennials can be a little bit more complicated than annual crops because you have these various stages. Right. It takes a little more effort in the process. And also I should point out that what I have just described is a process called recurrent mass selection. And so I didn't start out by taking and actually pollinating anything by hand, taking pollen from one plant and putting it on another. I had this mass of plants. And then I let the bees and the flies you know, do the pollinating, the cross-pollinating, and then I did selection work from then on. So that's recurrent mass selection, and it's recurrent because in order to maintain a good open pollinated variety, one has to do this selection every single year. What would happen if you didn't do it every year? Well, you would get 
a greater divergence, uh, less uh, uniformity, maybe some undesirable things would creep in. For instance, it would be real easy just to take the biggest bulbs and plant them out. But you may be unwittingly selecting then for a later plant because there might be some larger bulbs that have thicker necks, take a longer time to dry down. And so if you pick those out, you're going to be shifting the population to a later maturing variety. So in a class I took on, on breeding from John Navazio, you know, he said, you always have to be aware of not only what you are selecting for, but what you're selecting against or what you might not even know you're selecting for or against. After a while, it becomes a real artful process. And sometimes you'll have an onion in your hand, and, well, should I keep this one? Should I put it in the germ pool or not? And so, you know, you leave it in your hand for a few seconds, and you just let it speak to you. I know that sounds kind of weird, but... Then you make your decision based on how it feels to you internally. I like hearing that because there are a lot of things that we can measure in doing plant breeding. You know, you can go out and measure the height of every plant and the thickness of every neck of every onion. And you can get a lot of data about any given plant mm-hmm. that you have out there that will inform the decision that you make about whether whether it's one of the ones that you want and that data can be really important but sometimes there are things that we don't think to measure and that are sort of emergent properties that if we've been working with a crop for a long time we can have a an unconscious or a subconscious understanding of what makes a good onion or a good carrot or a good lettuce and that emergent quality can be something that is undefinable by numbers that you have. So not to say that it's... Absolutely. Yeah, it's not a magical quality, but if you're very familiar with something, your brain might be getting a lot of signals from that onion that you're holding and looking at that you you wouldn't necessarily be able to parse into really discrete traits. I think that's true, and and like you said, we can take all kinds of data, but do we really need that? Because I seem to understand right from the beginning when I embarked on this process, I somehow instinctively knew that I wanted to do what my gardening ancestor breeders uh, in the human race have done for the last 10,000 years except that in the last hundred years or so, we have put the breeding process off to university scientists and taken it out of the hands of the gardener and the farmer. And so I wanted to honor that long-term, many millennia-old process, because after all, all of the material that modern scientific breeders had to use was the heritage of 10,000 years of breeding and selecting that went before them. 
And so I figured I can do the same as they did, and anybody can do it. It's not very difficult at all. All you need to do is take the time to observe closely and become involved intimately with the plant itself. Hmm. One of the ways that you've become really intimately familiar with Dakota Tears is by eating it for many years. And I imagine that one of the selections you do with these onions during or after they're stored is to taste them. I was wondering if you could describe the taste testing process for me and what you're looking for in the eating qualities of this onion. Well, actually, we haven't done any specific taste testing. It's very difficult to do that with an onion. You can't take an onion bulb and take a slice off of it and plant it. As far as I know, it might then spoil. And uh, so I think it's, it's one of those things that's intuitive where it's similar to, well, there's that artful sense, I think. It's similar to the process we use in the selection of uh, Uncle David's Dakota dessert squash, where we strive for a certain shape where it seems to be genetically linked to the flavor, the quality of the flavor and the color of the fruit. And, you know, that goes back to a genetic heritage, and it's kind of similar to the, the onion as well. If we have an onion with a nice, you know, beautiful wrapper on it, and it's nice and solid, it means it's going to be very flavorful. The onions that turn out to be, and there are always some that pop up in there that don't keep as well. They're a little bit softer onion that won't make it through the seven months of storage or whatever time there is, that they aren't going to be as flavorful as the really nice, solid onion. That's a a good point to think about if you're embarking on a breeding project, how you're going to taste something if you need to also plant that something in the ground. Right. It's a, it's a difficult process at times. I know with beets you can take and cut off some of the, you know, fruit and put it in the ground uh, and, and it'll be fine. But I'm not sure that you could do that with onions because you're slicing through each onion layer corresponds to a leaf that it was growing at one time and yeah, I, I don't know if you could how much you could damage the bulb and it would still uh, grow well if it would heal or not. But uh, that's something I haven't haven't tried. There's all there are always things to try, I suppose, in the process, but that I haven't. Yeah, I haven't done any onion breeding, but I think that you could, if you were doing it right before you planted or, or very soon before you planted, cut it just above the root plate because I think that's actually all you need to put in the ground. And you might have a weaker plant growing that next year, but you could do some selection that way, though that would be even more complicated to try to take that on. Right. It might be something I could experiment with just to see how it works here. In our area, too, we have really strong winds. We have violent thunderstorms as well as, as well as sometimes, you know, 40-mile-an-hour winds that blow all day. And they have to have strong stocks, so we want well-rooted plants and intact bulbs. 
You've said that it was your goal to grow onions for your family, that that was your primary purpose in this project. So even though you don't taste test the individual onions as a selection step in the breeding process, you've been tasting these onions that you've stored through the winter for many years now. How would you describe the flavor of Dakota Tears? Well, I would say it's got a strong, robust onion flavor. Is it good for cooking or for eating raw? Well, I wouldn't eat it raw. It might be a little difficult because it's strong enough, but we use it in many, many things that we cook with. Do you have a favorite dish that highlights the onion? Well, I don't know. Onions are kind of like garlic in our home. It's uh, it's one of those things that are necessary for life itself, and so you just about throw onions and garlic in any kind of casserole or stew or, you know, with any roast or anything. They go in there. The Dakota Tears name was proposed by my nephew, Danny and Teresa's oldest son, who was familiar, of course, with its pungency, and and uh, so he just said, well, why not call it Dakota Tears? <laughs> so we thought that was a really good name, and so we've stuck with that. Is it more pungent than other onions you've come across? Well, I don't know that it actually is, but we just thought it was a grand name. Ah, Okay. I'd like to go back to thinking about the storage conditions that you put the onions in every winter. What are the requirements for onions to be able to flower the next year? Well, I don't know that there are any specific requirements. Um, I do not believe that the bulbs need to vernalize as such, meaning to go through a cool period, but they do need to go through a dormant period in order for them then to send out seed stock. But um, I do not know that for sure. I uh, am not familiar enough. I mean, I've just been doing this process for 45 years in this particular area of the country. And and I know we need to dig them and they need to go into storage. And And it's been... That's what I know. And it's been working the way that you've been doing it. Yeah, so... Yes. If they do need vernalization, then it sounds like they're definitely getting it in the basement in 40 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit for the seven months that you have them stored. Right. You're not doing anything additional to make sure that they get those winter conditions. And I do not know if onions are like potatoes, for instance. You dig a potato in the fall and put it into storage It has a dormant period on its own before it will grow again of about three or four months. And that may be true for onions, but I really don't know. This is a good question. Of course, there are always things we can learn about it. But, you know, I describe myself as a yeoman farmer that, you know, was just carrying on the tradition of uh, thousands of years of my ancestors who gardened and saved seed. It's a wonderful tradition to be choosing to be a part of. Yes. So for, maybe for onions, but for other biennial species, just to define this for our listeners, vernalization means providing the plant with conditions that make it think that it's experiencing winter. So if you were to leave your Mm -hmm. plants in the field and it got cold and, um, and the light 
changed, it would know that it had gone through winter, and then when when spring conditions come, it would know to start growing again and then to flower and go to seed. But if you dig those plants up in order to protect them so that they do survive, for example, a North Dakota winter, then you would need to provide them with cool enough temperatures for long enough that they felt like they had gone through winter. And so it, it might well be the case that those conditions in the basement are exactly what onions need. And so you don't have to do a whole lot more than that. But for other biennial species, that is information that has been researched either at a university or through the USDA or by others so that those are known um, temperatures and known lengths mm -hmm. of time such that if anybody wanted to start a breeding project with a biennial, they could look up whether there were vernalization requirements and what those were. Yes, yes. And I should point out with onions, too, is that uh, they are day-length sensitive. And so, you know, we can grow a certain class of long-day onions up here in the northern plains that they could not grow further south, for instance, meaning that our days are longer in the summertime here. So that means we need to plant the onions soon enough, of course, plant the onion seed soon enough so the plants can experience this, you know, long 16-hour day we have up here to form a bulb. And going further south, if you went down to Kansas with this variety of onion, uh, it may not form a bulb. Mm -hmm. So for short day-length onions, they only need 10 to 12 hours of daylight to start putting on a bulb. But for long-day onions, they need to experience those 16-hour days at a certain developmental stage to trigger bulbing. Right. Mm -hmm. So Dakota Tears is a, a long-day onion. Yep, it's a long-day onion. I'd like to make a side note here about vernalization requirements for onion. After my conversation with David, I consulted The Seed Garden, a book about seed saving from the Seed Savers Exchange, and confirmed that in order to flower and set seed in their second year, onion bulbs do need to be stored at 32 to 40 degrees Fahrenheit for at least 8 to 10 weeks. So Dakota Tears undergoes vernalization in David's basement where the conditions are right. How long did it take from starting the project to when you released the variety? You said you've been working in breeding for 40-something years. Is this onion something that you started at the beginning of your breeding career? Um, fairly soon, but I don't call it a breeding career. I call it a seed-saving, uh, awakening to seed-saving, I guess, is how you can put it. And we didn't release a variety as such. I mean, we were working with a couple of seed companies to produce some stuff for them. They'd send us the seeds, and we'd produce seed from that and send it off to them. And then in, the mat in a matter of conversation, uh, in a few years, well, we've got this nice onion or this nice squash or nice melon. Do you want to trial it? And so we, I think that's what happened with our onion with, I think, um, the first one to sell it uh, before we got into you know, internet sales, a company in Maine, uh, a Fedco, I think was the first one to uh, sell our onion. And I think that Organic Gardening picked it up for one of their trials and it was 
uh, voted best new vegetable variety 2010 or something like that. Have you heard other feedback from gardeners or farmers who have grown it? A person can just Google uh, Prairie Road Organic Seed or uh, Dakota Tears online, and some of the things that the reviews said were that it was huge and delicious, flavor-packed, stores well, the name fits, um, the best onion. (laughs) Obviously, people will send their positive uh, reviews in. But we've never had a bad review on it. That's got to feel good that people like it. Yes, yes. I mean, it is a terribly gratifying to, uh, or wonderfully gratifying, it's not terrible, it's wonderfully gratifying to know that the work that I've done in the garden over the years, which I consider an artful endeavor to have you know, some acceptance among gardeners around the country, it's um, very gratifying, yes. So you mentioned Dan and Teresa, your brother Dan Podol and his wife Teresa. They're the ones leading the Prairie Road organic seed. Right. They uh, manage and uh, provide the bulk of the labor uh, and do the sales for the various seeds that are grown. You know, it kind of all started with a lot of my stuff and then They got into internet sales of our own varieties and then some other uh, good open pollinated stuff. And that's been kind of continually expanding. And I've continued to do the grain farming and Danny helps me with that. And and, and then I help Dan and Teresa with their seed business when I can as well. And uh, maybe hoping to be doing more of that when when I retire from grain farming. Farmers don't really retire out of farming. They retire to a different type of farming. (laughs) Yes. How long was it between when you got those hundred or so bulbs in the garden to start the project in earnest and when you started having those conversations with the seed companies that you had seed contracts from? Um, It's probably pretty close to 20 years. So the variety was pretty well-established. I mean, when you do a cross like we did with the three different varieties, you will have some divergence in the material. I mean, all kinds of stuff will show up, and then you have to select from there what you want out of that population. And so I imagine it took about five or six years before we had this fairly stable variety that would be something that would be worth putting out on the market. But I was you know, it was 10 or 15 years after that before uh, the opportunity arose for that. So Dakota Tears has been a long time in the making. And it's one of the several varieties that you've pledged as open source. Mm-hmm. Is there a story that encapsulates for you the need for the open source seed initiative and having open source seed? Well, you know, when I started earnestly in the garden... Seeds couldn't be patented when I started on this process. The idea of patenting seeds and actually owning life forms was just anathema to most of the people of the world. And I have never stopped viewing seeds as a sacred thing, as a sacred trust, 
I mean, what else can be more important to the survival of the human race than the seeds we plant on our gardens and farms? And so I want to maintain the idea of the sacredness of that seed and the freedom of anyone to plant a seed. And so we have this variety of Dakota tears and you know, incorporated in that is my soul and all of these varieties, as I explained earlier, that are simply built on what other people, other agriculturists and gardeners have developed over 10,000 years. And so we considered, you know, those seeds a sacred thing that should be free for anybody to use. And that's why we have our varieties listed on OSSI. And so, you know, the thought in my brain anyway was that this material then would be free for anybody to use in their own breeding and selection projects. And so, well, there's a theologian that I, I read, and he said, that unless we have an intimate connection with the land on some level, we're not fully human, and that everyone should have a right to at least a plot of land on which he can grow part of his food. It is such a human thing to have your hands in the soil, and it's something we've lost since the industrial age came upon us. And I feel so strongly about people being able to be in the garden. And so when I listen to stories about, you know, vacant lots in the city of Detroit being turned into gardens and producing food for the people around them, it is just the most wonderful feeling to know that, you know, there's a revival of this sort of thing. And they need to have seeds that they can just take and plant and save the seeds from those plants and plant them again. You can count the seeds in a flower. Some wise person said you can count the number of seeds in a flower, but you can't count the number of flowers that can come from a seed. You know, the infinite number of generations in the future. We can't count those. And so we need to have seeds that will endure for as long as we are here. If there are folks listening who have not yet taken the jump into a breeding project, do you have any advice for them? Yeah. Don't be afraid to save seeds. You can start with the easiest things, the self-pollinated seeds like beans, and you know, then maybe go into something like cucurbits. And then the obligate outcrossers require a little bit more effort. But take the long-term view. You know, think about what seed save, why you're doing seed saving. And there's all kinds of information now on the internet about how to do stuff, but make it an art. Observe closely. That's the main thing. Work on maintaining diversity and handle the seeds gently. And I don't say this necessarily because should be something that we do when we're nurturing seeds. But in the case of Dakota Tears, we have learned that handling the seeds 
gently and doing the work by hand rather than threshing by machine means that the seed will have longer viability. Onions have been known for how long that their seed viability is only a couple years at best. We have discovered here by doing the threshing and cleaning by hand gently that we can extend the viability of onion seeds double or triple that easily because we don't da- the seed coat is easily damaged and because we don't damage the seed coat with gentle handling then the seeds will maintain their viability for longer time and so just having vigorous seedlings and we that's one of the things that people told us right from the beginning I failed to mention that earlier that the vigor of our seedlings is remarkable and I think it has to do not just with the highly fertile conditions that we raise the seeds in, we grow the seeds from, but also in our handling of the seeds. That's interesting. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to add? I think I did mention that, you know, if you're going to start on a recurrent mass selection process, that you need to begin with good material. You can't just throw poor material together and expect to get good material out of that. So don't just strive for diversity for diversity's sake, but always search out the the good material to incorporate in a population. So critical is the is the varieties that you choose, the germplasm you choose for that process. And so um, it would be well to go back to as close to breeder seed as you can get, either somebody that's, you know, doing the breeding and selection work on that variety or, you know, someone who has been doing a good job maintaining that variety and making sure that it's not contaminated with something that's of much lesser quality that would make the selection process then much more difficult and lengthy. And I'm a strong believer in population breeding, recurrent mass selection, that you let Mother Nature do that process. I mean, if, you know, if your end is to cross, you know, this squash with that squash, you know, plant out a whole bunch of each and and let the bees do the work and start from there. And it really is a marvelously satisfying process to see what results from a recurrent mass selection process and then to do the selection from there. It's like you're a co-creator with God in this. (laughs) It's a, a really satisfying process that you can create something new, but at the same time recognizing that there is nothing new. The genetic material has always been there and that you're just, you know, allowing it to express itself in this form or that form and and under this climate or that climate and whatever condition. And yes. Thanks so much, David, for being on the show today. It's been a real pleasure to get to talk with you. Thank you. You're very welcome, Rachel. I've been speaking today with David Podal. 
You can purchase seeds of Dakota Tears on the Prairie Road Organic Seeds website at prairieroadorganic.co. We'll have the full transcript of my conversation with David on the Open Source Seed Initiative's website at osseeds.org. You can get in touch with me at rachelholtengrin.com. You can find and like the Open Source Seed Initiative on Facebook and follow Free the Seed on Spotify or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevear. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm your host, Rachel Holtengren, and this has been Free the Seed.